and welcome back to the podcast. And I'm very excited about these next couple of episodes. In Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, she tells the story of traveling on a train with her father. And while they're on the train, she asks her dad something about sexuality. And her dad wants to know where this where this is coming from. And she says, oh, if some of the boys at school were talking. And she's about 10 years old at the time. When they arrive at their destination, uh, her father kind of stayed silent and didn't answer the question. But when they arrived at their destination, they began to get their luggage together. And he turns to Corey and he says, Corey, would you carry my suitcase for me? So she reaches down and tries to pick up the suitcase and as hard as she can, she she can't lift it. And she turns to her father and says, Father, it's just too heavy. And he says, so it is with some information. It's just too heavy to carry. And so I will carry this information until you are ready. And in these next couple of episodes, I tell that story because we're going to deal with some heavy information, some heavy truths. And I'll just tell you after recording these episodes, actually back to back, um, I was just so overwhelmed with just some of the things that are happening in our country right now. They're not new things. It's not like racism is a new thing. Uh, but there is a new or fresh awareness of it in light of recent days. And so we do talk about these things. In this particular episode, I interview pastors Todd and Rashonda Womack. And Todd's a social worker. He's currently a lecturer and academic advisor at U of M, that is University of Michigan Flint, in the social work department. And Rashonda's a counselor. She's a clinical therapist and working with children and adolescents in the Genesee Health Systems. Um, but they're also pastors of Community Connections at Flint Central Church. Um, they just have a passion for racial equity and equality. Uh, they work um, with different groups uh, in the Michigan area on um, just having, helping to tell better stories. Uh, or maybe I should say more true and accurate stories of racial equity and inequality. I just consider them to be good friends. Uh, I've known them for a while. Uh, and so we just have some candid conversation in this episode. I think I want to highlight, people don't realize that when you've experienced some form of prejudice, uh, it's hard to talk about. It's humiliating, you know, it's humiliating to experience it, but then it's even, it's just as humiliating to recount it. And sometimes it's just easier to not talk about it, pretend it didn't happen. I know that for some people who will be listening to this episode, it's easier not to hear it. So as difficult as it might be for you to listen, you need to know that it's twice as hard to talk about it. 
for the person who's actually experiencing it. Uh, we referenced some books in this episode, Prophetic Lament, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and Stamped from the Beginning. Uh, we also uh, talk about some um, commentaries, in particular uh, Africana commentary and women's Bible commentary, and I will provide links in the show notes for those. So you can check those out there. If you want to connect with Todd or Roshanda, uh, you can um, go to Flint Central website and connect there. I'll also include that in the show notes as well. I know Roshanda is on social media. I'm not so sure about Todd, so probably the website would be the best way for you to connect up with them. And I believe that this... um, episode will give you a lot to think about. So enjoy the episode. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different? Hey. Hey, what's going on? Sorry, we're late. It's all right. Hi. Hey. Oh, Rashonda is with you. Yay. <laughs> Good. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're recovering. <laughs> we party animals. We had a, a drive-through open house and a Zoom open house yesterday. What? Are you selling your house? No, no. Open house for my son. He graduated from uh, high school and he got an associate's degree. Yay! So in goes, he had a big party yesterday. So we still got our backdrop up from yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> With his school colors. Well, now is he gonna go to U of M? Yeah, he's gonna go to U of M Flint this fall. Awesome. That's nice and convenient. Yes, and he got a full scholarship, so that's a blessing right there. Nice. What's his major? Biology. Uh, is he going to go into medicine or research? Um, he wants to study food science, but they don't have that particular program, so he'll have to go on to graduate school and do food science somewhere else. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, I've been doing this for a while, a uh, year and a half, I guess. And it started with just wanting to, you know, tell better stories about women clergy, but then it's kind of branched out from there. And it's that idea of man, maybe one more theology book isn't going to uh, necessarily change someone's mind, but hearing people's stories and the impact they have on the kingdom of God will change people's hearts and minds and, you know, help us have better dialogue in the church, outside of the church. I want to get a lot of new listeners from the people mm-hmm. who know you guys, so. Okay, awesome, cool. Yeah. Well, I usually start by people just talking about where they're currently serving and what that looks like. So currently, um, Todd and I, we're serving at Flint Central Church of the Nazarene. We are pastors of Community Connections, and um, we've been there for about what, five years, mm-hmm. about five years now. And basically what that entails um, is a lot of things, but I think the 
the core of it is trying to create connections between our congregants and the community. So initially we started out with building a partnership with the local elementary school and then finding out what they needed, you know, what they could use assistance with because a lot of schools have gotten, you know, cuts over the years and they've had to eliminate some positions. And so we found that they needed um, assistance in the classroom. Some of the classroom aides had been cut. So we had people from our church to go in and volunteer to be aides in the classrooms, um, to be people that students who were struggling with reading could read to. Um, then we found out some kids were struggling more than others and they could benefit from having a one-on-one -on -one mentor. So we got people to go in and volunteer and kind of adopt the kid for the year. And they would commit to going to the school once a week to meet with that child either for breakfast or lunch or just to um, help them with their reading or help with a special project that they were doing in the classroom. And so that has continued over these years and it's branched out to, um, to a lot of other areas. We have several community partners that our church kind of comes alongside of other civic organizations that are working already in the community and we kind of assist them whether they may need financial assistance for a particular project, if they need volunteers to maybe help with a construction project or painting, or um, it could be helping with um, like food drives, water drives, things like that. So it kind of is a broad range. Oh, and we also have a partnership um, with the Boys and Girls Club that kind of grew out of this position because the position didn't exist before we got there. So we kind of been creating it, what it is, um, fleshing it out since we've been there. So um, just through some relationships we had, we found out that the local Boys and Girls Club wanted to have a second location on a different side of town. And our church happened to be like on the opposite side of town of the, the main Boys and Girls Club. And so we started trying to talk about what that could look like. We started with the summer camp that went for like six weeks. We did that a few years. And then now we have a full year round program yeah, I was going to ask you if that was a new position. That was something they completely created when you two came on staff, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know you are both bivocational. Where do you serve? Well, Todd, you serve at U of M Flint, but what do you, I know you teach. What else do you do there? I do academic advising and then serve on a lot of different committees. And then um, <laughs> committees that represent the university out in the community. And you're a, you're a social worker. Right, right. The trade, so before right. you started teaching, yeah. Yeah, just adding on to my wife, I think for us, initially going into the the um, role of pastor community connection, you know, we kind of thought if we provided opportunities for parishioners to engage with the community, then that would be the ultimate goal. But as we um, have embarked on this journey, it's become more evident that it has to be a relational approach because initially, like I said, we were like, let's create X number of opportunities. Prisoners would jump in, we'll be fine. But, you know, the relational approach is first we got to go into the community and initially just ask for permission to come into the community, right? And then right. if permission is granted and we have to ask for forgiveness for not being visible in the community. And then the last thing and, um, that we're mindful of is trying to make sure that we're lining up with God's call and charge on 
our role as pastors of community connection, not trying to do everything and anything for the sake of being engaged in the community. So a lot of what we've been talking about the last two or three years is part of our role is around spiritual formation too, um, so that we don't treat individuals in the community as objects. Right. Right, and I think a big part of it as well is just having conversations about maybe topics that people felt are taboo or they don't talk about, um, racism, classism, sexism, if you're going to engage the community. Because a lot of our people, they drive in. They don't necessarily live in this community. So they drive in from somewhere else. And so like Todd says, so they were in, in a sense strangers to the community. They may have been born here, you know, or they may have lived here at one point, but they weren't currently living here. And so as you, as you know, Flint has a lot of needs and people, um, came in sometime with the with the attitude that wasn't conducive to building a relationship you know and seeing that other person's humanity or seeing them as equal you know to them um and so we just try to reinforce the idea that we're helping each other and we're learning from each other so it's not just a one directional approach that so we're going and we're going to do this for you and we're coming in to be your savior you know <laughs> Right. So, but it's about what can we learn through this mutual experience? And we want it not to just be a one-time thing, but an ongoing relationship, an ongoing conversations between the community and the church. Yeah. And you have your, you have a master's, you're a clinical therapist, right? Yes. Well, my title right now is therapist, but my uh, degree is in counseling. I have a master's in counseling. So gotcha. um, primarily... The work I've done has been in the schools, um, doing counseling with, with kids individually and in groups, um, working with parents. And uh, the, the job I currently have now, I work for a community um, organization, Genesee Health Systems. And it, although I'm not, that position is outside the school, they send me into the school anyway. <laughs> So I always end up in the school somehow, but I, I love to be with uh, kids, with young people, and um, just trying to help them gain the skills that they need to be resilient. Yeah, we definitely need we definitely need the counselors, the therapists in the schools, and it seems to be that a thing that's lacking a lot. Yeah, and that's another you know budget cut issue. You know the position that I had before in the school was cut because of funding. So um, now I work for an outside organization who has grants to send counselors and social workers and therapists into the schools because the school doesn't have money for that in its budget. Right, that's awesome. And there are a lot of needs in Flint and I'm sure there'll be people who are, we do have some people who listen, don't live in Michigan. And I think even people who live in Southeast Michigan sometimes forget that the Flint water crisis is still ongoing. So will you just talk about what that is, um, like how it started, what that is, kind of give people a summary. There's a lot of people who have just have no idea what that even is. And then what have they done? How have we made any progress in it? Where are we at? And then I know you guys have a hand in that and you're involved in helping to find solutions. Well, let's see, it's been six years since this all started. A, a year before they admitted 
that there was a problem. Right. <laughs> so depending on who you ask, it's been five years. Other people say it's been six years. We say six years since they switched the water source from Detroit. We were on the same water source as Detroit. And so we would get um, our water from, was it from Lake Huron and the Detroit River. In an effort to save money, um, a decision was made to switch the water source from Detroit to Flint and use the Flint River as the water source for the residents here, which was not a good choice. Let <laughs> me back up. This, this all started because Flint was financially in the red, right? So the governor decided that he would appoint an emergency manager to take over the finances and to get Flint back in the black. So they would come in, they would make the necessary cuts and changes to bring us out of bankruptcy, as you, you know, as you would say, we were behind. So when, when that happened, the emergency manager came in. Now the emergency manager has the power to override all local officials, elected officials. So your mayor, your city council, all those people are really just figureheads at that point. They have no actual power. So the emergency manager came in, he made this decision to switch the water back, um, to switch the water to the Flint River. And so when that happened, you know, there were a lot of concerns because I grew up here and we know that the Flint River is contaminated, right? It's been polluted, um, had been polluted in years past before there were environmental regulations, companies, corporations could come in and just dump whatever byproducts or whatever they had into the water. And so we knew the water was polluted, you know, grew up, our parents tell us don't swim in the Flint River, don't eat the fish out of the Flint River. So when we first heard that, that sparked some concerns. And then a little while after that, people started noticing changes in their water, the, um, the smell of the water, the color of the water, the taste of the water had changed and people, paid any attention to that or, or really listen to what residents were saying. I think maybe a few months after General Motors even noticed that there was a change in the water and it was corroding some of their equipment and the, the um, metal pieces that they were using. And so they switched back to the Detroit water while the residents continued to drink this water. So eventually, to make a long story short, like about a year later, Finally, they admitted that, yes, this water um, is contaminated with lead. And it was a push, not, not so much just by the residents of Flint, but there were outsiders that came in and tested the water and you know, were able to produce evidence. There was a local doctor who had been studying children's blood level, uh, blood, lead. The, the lead level in children's blood. And um, she had seen a steady increase in the, the levels of lead um, found in local children's blood since the water had been switched. So through all of this evidence, they were able to finally um, get the leaders, the emergency manager, the mayor, I mean, not the mayor, the uh, governor, and things to admit that there was a problem here. And so by that time, you know, all the residents in the city had been exposed to lead in the water for about a year. So, I mean, right now, I think they're still replacing, you know, those lead lines that hasn't been fully completed. You still have the, the, the broader issue, which is 
um, you know, for me and my wife and others in the community, systematic racism, right? That the water was just a symptom of, of that. Many believe that if it was an affluent, you know, white community, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. The other piece is that, you know, even if or when the lines are replaced, will people trust enough to drink the water, right? Which leads into the financial piece where, you know, our water rates are, I, I can't even think of the percentage higher than the national level, right? You know, we're paying like between 160, 170 a month in water that really is not healthy to drink. And so that's an economic burden on the city that's been disinvested in, right? Marginalized throughout the years. So, you know, a lot of work to be done in addressing the basic needs, but then the other is the relational piece, right? How will residents begin to trust leadership for their well-being? And two things I thought about that I didn't mention before is not only did they switch the water source, but then in an effort to save, I guess, additional, maybe I don't know if it was $100 or something a day, they decided that they were not going to properly treat that water. You know, in other cities, this has happened before. So they know there's a way you have to treat water that is corrosive or harsh. And so they decided they didn't want to pay that extra amount to properly treat the water with this corrosion control to keep it from eroding the pipes. So this was like no mystery. This has happened before. They know what needs to be done if you're going to use this type of water as a drinking source. But that, for whatever reason, was not done. Again, like I said, we feel like it was, it's a racial issue here. It's a symptom of um, environmental racism that they did not think enough of the residents here or value our lives enough that they would properly treat the water that they're going to give to us. And then after people complain, those complaints are ignored. And then when people start to refuse to pay for water that they can't drink, they then, they then penalize residents of Flint by putting liens on their homes and taking their property because they refuse to pay for poison water. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind that if this had happened in West Bloomfield, it would have been fixed three times over by now. Yeah. So most of the water has, or some of the lines have been replaced, yeah, but now yeah, a majority of those have been replaced. And are they back on Detroit water? Yes, yes, they switched back. Um, maybe about what, three years ago, they switched back. Once it was admitted, you know what was going on, they switched back um, to the Detroit water source. Um, but I think the plan is still to move us to another water source. There's a pipeline being built. Then that, that's what part of why they say our bills are so high because they're building a brand new pipeline from Lake Huron that's going to bring water here. Um, and, you know, they're saying that today the water is safe to drink, that it meets, you know, the highest standards. But, you know, I'm not drinking. A lot of people are not going to drink it. I don't think I ever drink it again because I cannot trust what they say. They've said that before. Right. And this is part of what got you involved in Convoy of Hope, right? Right. In 2016, we had a parishioner who knew someone at the regional level from Convoy of Hope because we were in relationship with the community church, Joy Tabernacle. Um, and they were 
trying to respond within their local community, civic park, neighborhood, and meet the needs of families there with water. When the disaster first took place, the fire departments were distributing two cases of water um, and you had to show ID, right, for families. And so me and that pastor just talked and felt that that was kind of like an inhumane way to respond. You know, he took it upon himself to start trying to do water drives and distribute water as often as he could. And then when our parishioner made the connection with the regional person for Convoy of Hope, knowing that Convoy of Hope is a worldwide disaster response organization through the Assemblies of God out of Springfield, Missouri, um, we entered into a relationship with them where they committed to donating two semi-loads of trucks of water per month and it would come out of that location in Civic Park. And so, right, the next two years, that's how we really supported water distribution in the north side of Flint, which has historically been the side of town that's been disinvested in, right? That relationship really was a blessing um, because we didn't card people. You could take as much water as you wanted. It was more relational, you know, it was an assembly line. And then out of that, Convoy of Hope introduced us to what they call uh, community events, where a community comes and celebrates just the essence of being together um, and treating residents as guests of honor. In the midst of this crisis, how do we still celebrate the humanity uh, within each one of us, the image of God in each one of us? And so we started those community events second Saturday in September, where we would just come together and do free everything, free haircuts, give away groceries, give away water, bounce houses, music, free uh, shoes, shoes, clothes, family photos. family photos, health screenings. It was a community um, response. It wasn't just a faith-based initiative, you know? And so we partnered, like I said, with other um, churches, and other community organizations to provide those those experiences. And every year we average over, I mean, 2,000 to 2,300 um, uh, people coming through and over 700 volunteers every year supporting that event. Wow. And the thing that resonated with us, you know, residents will say, you know, it's been a long time that something like this has happened in our community. And so the next phase of that relationship with Convoy Hope is they're gonna, engage in a relationship with Pacific Park Community um, Urban Renaissance Center, which is the social services arm of Joy Tabernacle Church to do urban farming. Because Joy Tabernacle own a lot of vacant property. And so they're gonna look at that property and begin urban farming. And that's the key to recovering or mitigating some of the effects of lead is also nutrition. So there's been a big push towards you know residents eating more vegetables and fruits and foods that are high in vitamin c calcium and things like that so um to help mitigate the effects of the lead well i want to get into some of the other current event stuff that's happening yeah oh and i'm supposed to make sure i give both of you virtual hugs from rob okay <laughs> yeah, don't give them back to him right thank you rob i right, love right. you yeah. Hey, you guys, well, I know that you're doing work in 
in the Flint area, but also specifically with the denomination, with our district, right? To have, um, I mean, you, have, you guys both have a passion for racial equity and equality, and you've been, don't you just love Zoom? Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, right, right. I, come over, I came over to my office because I knew, like, my home office is not going to be quiet, so now I have somebody weed whacking outside my window. <laughs> well, you know. Right, right. Uh, so I know you're doing stuff. You're having conversations around racial equity and equality with the district, the denomination. Um, can you just talk about like how that came about, what that looks like? Because right. I was at your team day a few years ago. You did at team day, which is um, basically a Sunday school convention for the state, and you did a presentation there and. Did this kind of come out of that? Was it tie, Was there a tie into that? So I think it was all of the above. I think, man, four years ago maybe, there was a, a gathering of pastors, you know, on the district level, um, just in general around the issue of equity and equality. Um, so we had pastors from Detroit, Flint, Pontiac, We've been in the denomination for a while, just having casual conversations in regards to what does that look like in our district. And then from there, um, opportunities presented themselves through um, Dr. Gardner, knowing our passion for that, referred us, or not referred us, but recommended us to someone from Team Day, and they approached us and knew on our workshop. And so from there, we brought in Brother Gabriel, Elmont, Elmont, right, Elmont. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, rewind. Right. Brought, in. brought in Brother Gabriel from Almont, Pastor, right? In this conversation, because we met him actually the first year we did the workshop at Team Day. And he was like, Man, I want to talk more to you. And so from there, we have made that like our annual push, you know, at Team Day, we're always going to present on something that deals with, you know, race, empire, etc. And then from there, after the last Nazarene General Assembly, when they passed Resolution 915 on discrimination, a few of us were talking and asking the question, like, what does this look like at the district level? Right. And so we began to have conversations, me and my wife, um, Dr. Kitsko, Dr. Gardner, regarding what would this look like at the district level? And so in August, we began having meetings with not just individuals from the Eastern Michigan District, but people from the community and other denominations around how are we gonna to respond to injustices or inequities in our community as it relates to black and brown people, right? And so we've been meeting off and on since then with the hope of looking at how do we get two different ways to approach this. One from an educational perspective, like what needs to happen for people to be more aware and then the other is from a policy framework in regards to what policy do we need to look at that may right now perpetuate inequities and inequality and how do we make those changes? And so for us in the denomination policy is really polity, our polity. How does our polity uh, respond to equity, really diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? We're gonna use those appropriate terms. So that's kind of where we are right now because with the pandemic, that kind of put a lot of things on hold, but it has also magnified those issues. I um, 
for my part, I'm on the education wing of it. Like we got two sides, two approaches to it. And so what we had hoped is that by this spring, we were gonna have a speaker to come in and talk to pastors about this issue. And then we're going to, we were gonna to begin to offer this Whiteness 101 training course to help all the pastors on the district be able to identify uh, white supremacy um, white fragility and to white privilege and all of that. So beginning to have some conversations and say some of those words that have been, you know, in the past unspeakable, like you can't say that. When I first came into the nomination, you know, if I was to say white privilege or white power or white uh, supremacy, people would be like, oh, no. like they'd be shocked, you know, <laughs> that I would say those things in relationship to the church, that the church had ever had a role in any of that. So, you know, just normalizing that and being able to tell the truth about our country and about our denomination and just making that common knowledge, not something that is hidden or that we, you know, shy away from, but that we face it head on and we address it. And so that we don't repeat the same mistakes that we have in the past. So that's the hope that we didn't get to do that this spring, but that we will get to uh, begin to begin some of that education process. And then Todd is working on the other side with the policy and providing opportunities um, and making the situations in terms of like leadership positions and all of that in the Church of the Nazarene more equitable, at least in our district. A new awareness. Um, I think maybe the tension of the pandemic and a couple of other things in some ways created um, an ideal platform to bring a new, fresh awareness of this issue. That maybe, maybe if the tension wasn't already there from the pandemic, it would have again gone unnoticed. Right. And so, uh, I know you guys are big on the education, and a lot of people have been sharing books. But I guess I'd like to hear from you. What are some of the maybe two or three key books? right now that you would personally recommend um, and then if you're willing to i'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, code switching intersectionality uh, mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot of people who don't know what that means but also don't understand the added tension that puts on people of color i'll let him recommend the books because Mostly the books I'm reading are for school, <laughs> but I guess I could recommend those too. I found some really good commentary. I've got, um, I got one here. Um, it's the Women's Bible Commentary. And so this one I've been using in my Old Testament class. I'm taking a class on telling the Old Testament story through Nazarene Bible College. And so this, I've been supplementing <laughs> my learning with this one. And then there's also an Africana, um, Bible commentary. Let me grab that one. So for me, you know, because input is one of my five strengths. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading all the time, right? So, man, a few would be um, Prophetic Lament, which is a call for justice in troubled times by Soon Chan Ra, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone, and those both are from a theological framework. And then you have Stamped from the beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, right? 
and he's a historian, has a PhD. And so he goes through the history of racism in this country. And then his second book, How to Be Anti-Racist. So those will be. Oh, that's his same author? Same author, yep. Even Max Kennedy, yep. How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? All of those are kind of heavy reads, right? So if you want a light read, then you go with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, you know? Yeah, and that's a good one. He, um, it's a letter that he wrote to his son about being a black man in America. So his son was a teenager at the time. And so it's kind of an open letter to him um, to kind of give him some words of wisdom and guidance as he moved forward with some of the things, letting him know about what that means to be a black man in America and what types of things you may confront along the way because of that. Okay, I found this other one. It's the Africana Bible. All right. So this one, though, has really has been really good. I've been enjoying the commentary. It's just the Old Testament um, in here, but I'm really enjoying the perspective um, in terms of the theological approach um, to the scriptures and rereading the scriptures through a liberation theology, um, even, even sometimes a feminist theology. It, it's really good. A black, a black theology approach is really good. So they've got lots of different writers in here. And then now, I'm, I told you, I'm not that a big reader. So I watch documentaries. This is one that I love. I Am Not Your Negro. Yeah, by James Baldwin. It's really um, based on the last book he was writing before he died. And so someone picked this up and they began to imagine if he had finished the book. And a lot of things that he speaks to in that final work, um, it's almost, it's very prophetic. A lot of things he was talking about when he wrote this 30 years ago are taking place now. Mm. And so that's a good documentary, people who don't like to read. Yeah, that's oh, a good... don't have time to read. We'll say like they don't have time to read. And the other one is 13th. If you want to understand more about the criminal justice system and think... how that system has become you know, the new Jim Crow or the a new form of enslaving black and brown bodies. Um, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but there was a loophole that you could enslave people if they were criminals. And so then that is how um, we, we begin to see the criminal justice system morphing into this new form of slavery because they have people in prison today who are working for free corporations are having them to make their products and and um to build things for them and they're not paid for that or if they're paid it's very little you know maybe 50 cents a day or something it's a new form of slavery that is legal do you want to talk about code switching and intersectionality yeah so i guess lead us into that when you say that what are you thinking or how are you operationalizing that uh so my you know i my limited knowledge is a little bit of Austin Channing's work. And she talks about shifting, code switching, switch shifting. In other words, uh, you have to act one way with one group of people, another way with another group of people. And then the exhaustion that comes with that. Uh, and then intersectionality, the idea of that we have, when you have multiple layers of discrimination. So it's not just one layer, but now you have multiple layers. So like, I'm not just a woman, 
but I'm right. also a black woman, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think like the code switching for me. I don't, I don't know now really how I view that. When I was younger, I think I did more of that in terms of having to be careful about how I spoke, depending on who I was speaking to and being more aware of how the way I spoke maybe would shed light on how smart I was or how you know capable I was around certain groups of people. And maybe now I've just done it so long it does not, <laughs> that I don't really even realize I'm doing it. But um, absolutely that there is, you know, an education I think that black people undergo as you grow up. I remember having aunties or my mother, different people always would tell me, okay, when you get here, we're gonna speak proper. Right? <laughs> when you get here, you speak proper. Even though at home, we're not speaking like that. So there, there was an education or a teaching that you have to speak in certain ways in order to be perceived as good enough with you know with with white people and right. you have to speak in ways that make them comfortable right because one thing with me is i'm loud and so my mother would be like you gotta quiet down they don't like that okay they don't like that you too loud you have to quiet down so i don't know if that scares white people i don't know what it is but but i remember being told that that i was too loud or i talked too much and then watch how i speak in the company of, of other people who would not like me yeah i mean you know just join, just jump in, and if you want us to go deeper or you want us to go in a different direction, let us know. But I just think, hearing my wife, you know, James Baldwin, you know, he has this quote that when I was younger, I always would embrace, and still do to this day to some extent. He says, to be black and conscious in America is to be in a continuous state of rage, right? And, and so part of what I've had to do is kind of numb myself to a lot of things so that I'm not always angry, right? In a way that it's not healthy. And I think it still has an impact on you because you're still trying to suppress the anger that you feel when you see injustices taking place. And so when we talk about code switching, and I really got this from Ibram X. Kennedy's book, the first one, stamped from the beginning, there is this expectation that you have to perform a certain way to be accepted. You have to do something to persuade a certain group of people that you're human, right? And I'm saying, so, so to even hear the word code switch takes me from zero to five unless I catch myself, right? right. Then I'll go to 10, right? So it's not the person that's saying code switch is the one that's the focus of my anger. It's the the notion that I have to is what takes me from zero to 10, right? And so like one, one variant of that is, you know, after the George Floyd situation took place, we're having to have conversations with our son, all three of them about what this means. And so in the black community, you have this educational framework, what we call black boy rules. You sit down and have these conversations with your black boys on how to respond to police officers when pulled over or confronted so that you make it home safe, right? And so for me, the mere fact that you have to have that conversation to your son to behave a certain way 
kind of lines my, itself up with what we talk about code switching, right? You, you got to perform a certain way for someone to see the humanity in you, right? To see the image of God in you. And, and so that's what I wrestle with in regards to code switching. And I haven't even necessarily introduced the intersectionality, right, part, right? Right. With the idea of code switching, I don't know, it's, it's just reaffirming, like you said, this racist idea that there is a, a right way of speaking or acting because that is the way that the dominant culture speaks and acts. And so that is perceived as the standard you know, that we have to ascribe to, we have to reach this standard in order to be perceived as intelligent or capable. And so that is problematic for me, <laughs> that there is, I don't know, that there is an, a notion still that, that you have to, you know, speak a certain way or present yourself a certain way. Which, which really affirms this hierarchy speaking a certain way really means behaving a certain way right and so really when you talk about behave right it's kind of like you talk to your children like about behaving right <laughs> behave a certain way right so this you know you have the patriarchy right like be, behave a certain way and, and you won't be punished right? which re reifies the hierarchy so even like i think about my hair you know when i decided to lock my hair i used to straighten my hair and perm my hair so it would it would look more like yours mm -hmm. right because that again is something that we're taught if you can speak as though you're you know a european american if you can dress as though you're a european american if you can wear your hair to make you look more like you know you're european american then you'll be more acceptable and that allow you to have more opportunities so when i decided to lock my hair my mother called like an intervention she called my my great aunties one of them flew from florida <laughs> then they cornered me in the kitchen and they wanted to know what is going on with my hair like what is wrong with me why am i doing this you know my mother's like you got a college degree you got an education you're a professional woman why are you doing this to yourself you know like so this is sabotage if you are going to wear your hair natural if you're going to let the world see what you really look like is going to really be to your detriment is what they're saying to me yeah and so to wear my hair locked and wear my hair natural is really act of rebellion against that notion that just to be the way god created me is not good enough that i've got to ascribe to whiteness and so that's a pushback against it to say no right my, my thought is there are some people who they're not going to read books and they want to make themselves feel better. So they're going to share certain things on social media. But if they hear somebody that they know, it, it might change their hearts or their minds, or at least get them thinking a little bit differently. And then God will use that maybe to make a shift in them. So, so I guess that's, part of why I'm asking you guys is these questions and I appreciate, I know that it's, it's hard to talk about. I mean, um, you know, I've shared my story with you guys about just experiences, prejudice I've experienced as a female pastor and, mm. and you don't want to talk about it. Cause you're like, if I talk about it, then in some ways it doesn't make it better. Right. In some ways 
Right. Um, they doubt you. They, well, maybe you just misunderstood or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I appreciate you just even being willing to talk about it to this degree. So I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. You can answer it or not answer it. So I saw, cause I saw, I've seen this post has been going around that's troubling me. And supposedly it was posted by a black man. Now I know all that stuff can be faked. Anybody can slap a picture on it and just say it was them, but supposedly it was. Um, and this huge, huge long post of why white privilege isn't a real thing and how uh, I've, I've earned the position that I've gotten and I worked hard and if you work hard too. And I mean, you've, you've heard all of these things. It's not like I'm saying anything new. <laughs> so this is more for the benefit of the people listening. So I, I, I guess my question is, why would, assuming that this really was posted by a black man, why would they post something like that? It's confusing for me, so maybe you could just help me out in my ignorance. You know, maybe the person who posted it is confused. <laughs> just because people post something doesn't mean that they are necessarily posting truth or that they're necessarily even knowledgeable. Or what happens when the reason why you code switch has been accomplished, therefore you don't need to code switch again. You passed, right? Gotcha. So if you bought into, let's just say, if you bought into whiteness, right, and you benefited from whiteness or ascribing to whiteness, then anything other than that presents as a threat to you and your self-interest. So I'm going to speak the rhetoric I'm going to speak the values. I'm going to speak the perspective of that which has benefited me. Even if I don't um, look like that, who benefits from it ultimately, right? So I think, yeah, we, we, we all wrestle with that. It's kind of like, why haven't we had a female president? Yeah, I think that's all I have to say right now about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just, you know, ties into this this lie that we all have been told about the American dream, that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that it's a level playing field, everybody has equal opportunity. And we know that that's not true for our white people. We know it's not true for our black people or people of any, you know, ethnic or cultural background. It's not a level playing field. A lot of what people are able to do and accomplish oftentimes is tied to who you know or how much money your family has. So we know that there's not a level playing field. Right. And so for someone to assert that somehow that there is, they're living in a fantasy. So I don't know if that's their own creative fantasy or if they're just buying into this myth of the American dream. I think for us as Christians, I mean, at the core, one of the things is that we share. We offer ourselves for others, right? Even when we define spiritual formation as what? Becoming more and more in the image of Christ for the sake of what? The world, not for ourselves, right? Right. So any rhetoric that puts the focus on you and your self-interest and you benefiting is counterindicative of who we are as Christians. We're supposed to empty ourselves for others. And so they imply that someone hasn't worked hard. I mean, that's not grace. We don't, we don't work 
you know, for salvation is a gift that's being offered to us, right? We accept. From a theological perspective, that doesn't line up with who we are as Christians, that you have to work hard to earn X, Y, and Z, you know. That's where sometimes our theology gets in bed, so to speak, with our nationalism, right? Yeah. I say I'm thinking about those two together. They gonna create an ugly baby. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Nationalism and, and theology. Mm -mm -mm. That's a dangerous child right there. Yeah, it is. Oh, and we have uh, the prophets uh, to testify. Right. On that one, right? Right. Right. Well, it's, I know I usually ask at the end for people to give uh, advice for people going through the process to be ordained in some ways that this whole episode really is about that. But, uh, you know, if we're moving towards ordination and we want to be more Christ-like, uh, we have to deal with some of these things in our own heart. So do you just have any advice you want to give for people who are answering the call to ministry and you can do it just generic or if you want to specifically address people of color um, or white people. And there are no white people, just people who think they're white. Right. And there are no black people, right? Just people who have been called that because white and black doesn't tell us anything about who we really are. Right, yeah. And where we're from. So just generic little labels that we put out there, but doesn't mean anything. Oh goodness, that's a tough one. The struggle is real. <laughs> That's what I can tell you. The struggle is real. The yeah. struggle um, towards justice, the struggle towards truth, the struggle towards love and equality is real. And so if God is calling you to be his minister, to be his mouthpiece, to be ordained in this church, that it will be a struggle. So just get ready for that. Be prepared for the struggle. But as you said earlier, in that struggle, that's when and that's how we're changed. That's how we're formed into who God will have us to be. And we're able to speak his truth in love. So for me, I'm coming from a scripture, Romans 8:31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, you know, in our way of talking, sometimes we say, if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. Mm. So that would be the encouraging word that I would share with those who are on this journey to know that you are called and those around you will affirm that call. But as my wife said, you know, the enemy is going to present challenges for you, but those, those challenges are not going to defeat you. They're only going to make you stronger as long as you walk close with God and seek his presence. It's not the goal that you seek. And I learned that the hard way when I was going through, like, I got to get there, I got to get there, and I get there. No, the process is what is more important, right? God wants to know, are you um, going to honor? Are you going to value? Are you going to hold on to that in which I called you for? Or are you going to focus on the goal, right? Your dream, right? Which one is more important? And the calling is always important. Yeah. You know, Mother Teresa says, God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. So are you going to be faithful to the call? When we do Mac, we always close with every pastor gets to have a tweet. 
Will you share your Will you share your tweet? The one you always share at the end of Mac. Your family is your first ministry. Your family is your first ministry. And I think that's important. That's, you know, very important to remember. And so I think for me, I've been in this process about six years working towards ordination, but I only take a couple classes a year because my family is my first ministry. So I have to have time to be available for my kids and for my boys. And so sometimes I feel like I'll never get through. I'll just be taking classes forever. Like I just quit. <laughs> you know, I just quit. Like, why am I even doing this? But you know, it's it's in that process. Like I said, that God is shaping me and forming me. And and while I have this dream or this aspiration to be ordained, I think that doesn't outweigh my dream or my ambition to be a great mother on today. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so you just have to have some balance. Yeah. Hey, well, I appreciate you guys coming on here and sharing your heart. I appreciate you for opening the door. Yeah. Is there anything you haven't shared that you wanted to share? I don't know. I think for me, the only thing that, and this is probably a whole nother podcast in itself, you know, <laughs> if we're going to be a church that values diversity, equity, inclusion, then we have to be a church that values diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. It's not one to say we want a multicultural church by just plucking black and brown people from wherever and dropping them in our, our congregations and say, yes, we're now diverse. Um, I remember it was a Dr. Crocker some years ago came and talk to us about the three B's as far as um, believing, behaving, and belonging. Remember that? Mm, He said, you got to flip the first and the last B. So does your spaces where you worship communicate to people that come in there that they belong? That's the goal, that there is a space that the gospel presents itself in a way that people feel I belong. Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. We should do that one another time. (laughs) Yeah, we should do that one for sure. You know, how do we work towards that, creating this diverse church? Because sometimes I feel like, you know, we're expected to just like work this miracle because you got two black people here and you, okay, we put two black people on staff. They're going to just be the magnet to draw black people from all corners of the earth. <laughs> They're going to just flood in, you know, <laughs> just because we got these two black people here. Like you said, practically, if I got to come into your space and code switch. Right. I'm not being refreshed there because it's exhausting, right? Mm. So who wants to who wants to go to that once a week, right? I, I get that. I totally get that. Part of me wonders, like, is it possible for is it possible? Like how does how do you make that possible? Yeah, it's possible. And like you said, that's probably a whole, you know, podcast of it at home. But I just think yeah. it, it starts out with, you know, how do we create a space where people, whoever they are, feel they belong? And people can discern if that's authentic or artificial. Right. And I think now is one of them sliding door moments in the history of the church. It started off with the pandemic, right? Sliding door, like, okay, how will you respond to this? Mm-hmm. Now it's like, okay, you've been talking about multicultural church. Are you going to expand this, the walls of the sanctuary now and, and show up in spaces that don't look like the spaces you're typical of being in right 
And I think about a part of helping people to feel as though they belong is to care about the issues that are affecting minorities, black and brown people. People you say you want to bring in, the people you say you care about, you know, it's hard for me to feel as though I belong either in a church or a denomination that does not speak to those issues, that's silent on those issues. Not only speaking, but also acting. The two, like my wife, if, if you're silent to the issues that impact me, and then you invalidate them by saying, oh, I don't see color, right? <laughs> then I do, do I believe that I belong in your space, right? Your church? Mm -hmm. If you don't hear me, and then you invalidate that which is a fact, my diversity, right? It's kind of like saying, Joanne, I, I don't see gender. I, I, lo I love you as a child of God, right? Your soul is, I mean, you just, you just went by that in which is a part of who I am, right? And as absurd as that sounds, I don't think people get that when it deals with the issue of race. I don't see color in you. I see just, you know, one of God's children. I'm like, okay. But everybody else sees it. It, it nullifies that in which God has created me an image of. If, if you want to go there, well, did God make a mistake and create me black? God sees me as black. I know he does, right? I know he does. All the years, like, I don't see you, you know? He's not oblivious. Right, 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 right. And he chose He chose to create us what? All of us in the way that he's created us. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Sorry. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> right, 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 right. I invited you. I, I know you. I know you, too. Yeah. Right, I invited right. you on here to be honest and candid. So I think that's the only way that people understand is if we start telling stories. Right. Start telling the truth. Yeah. Amen. Beautiful. I thank you for doing this. Yeah. I hope we get to see each other again from Mac. I know. <laughs> I know we were talking about that the other day. Like, man, what is that gonna be like? You know, be one big Zoom meeting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It will not be the same if we can't physically lay hands on people and pray for them, especially at the end. That's always so powerful when we do that. Right. Mm -mm. Right. You lay your hands on the screen. That's <laughs> lay your hands on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to see the two of you and. Make sure you're still staying safe. Yeah, you all too. We get holding on. That's some code switching for you. There you <laughs> that was what? no code switching for you. <laughs> we yet holding on. <laughs> yeah, I understand you. I know we could go for another hour probably, but yeah. I hope you all have a good day. You too. Right, Appreciate you. Too. you.